Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 26th of January, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Okay, everybody, be afraid. Be very afraid because there's a new new variant coming. In fact, it's not a new variant. It's a sub-variant of a new variant. Uh, so we had this yesterday in the mail. Prevalence of more infectious sub-variant of Omicron has quadrupled in a week and is now more common than the Delta strain of COVID. Uh, 426 cases in total yesterday. Uh, just a few hundred cases of BA.2, as it's being called, uh, have been detected in the country so far, but the number of people testing positive for the subvariant has quadrupled in the last week. Uh, BA.2 was uh, behind 0.8% of all positive samples in the seven days to January the 15th, up from 0.2% the week prior. Uh, and it suggests around 1 in 125 people who tested positive uh, for COVID in the period had the new subvariant. So that's all uh, amazingly fantastic news uh, because we get lots more fear and lots more calls for uh, lockdown because this was the headline in the Express this morning. COVID horror <laughs> calls to halt lifting restrictions as stealth Omicron mutation cases surge. <laughs> I've got to laugh. My, they're, running out of, they're running out of words to use. Well, you know, the, and increasingly the, the use of capital letters. The word halt has to be in horror, capital letters. Horror, so horror COVID yeah. horror. So, so clearly the Express uh, and the Mail and so on haven't uh, got the memo on the fact that uh, the SAGE group have been outed for uh, imposing fear on the population. They're attempting to do it as well. Um, and the Express here saying, uh, with over 500 cases of the latest Omicron sub-variant being identified in England uh, and more than 40 other countries reporting a surge, experts have called for Plan B restrictions to remain in place. Uh, the UK Health Security Agency has described the latest Omicron mutation BA.2 as a variant under investigation. So far, more than 500 infections have been confirmed in England uh, and the latest data from UK HSA found it appears to be able to spread faster than the original Omicron, uh, but much more research is needed to be certain. And of course, we're going to get right back into this whole narrative of whether it's going to be spread faster or whether it's going to uh, be more uh, likely to cause hospitalizations and so on. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is it is incredible. And let's say welcome to Alex. Uh, it is incredible, Alex, that, that uh, you know, the more of this narrative builds, the more desperate they come to keep this thing, they get to keep this thing going. We, we go from coronavirus to variants, now to sub-variants. How far down this chain are we going to go? Are we going to get to the atomic level? Get to alphanumeric strings of three or more characters, people are going to lose the ability to follow that. Unless, of course, we make words out of the alphanumeric strings, BA1, which sounds a bit like a Wiltshire postcode to me, but never mind. Uh, that's just about a mouthful. But if it gets longer than that, it'll be acronymized or maybe the numbers will be turned into vowels. Who knows? Uh, this, this could go on ad infinitum. Some languages permit seven syllable long words, you know. Uh, well, if we are talking about uh, get heading back into Plan B again, uh, having just announced uh, coming out of it, what's happening on the continent? What's happening in Denmark? What's been trailed in Jutlandsposten, which I think people will be aware of the name of uh, the, the Jutland regional paper that got into hot water a few years ago, Jutlandsposten has uh, got uh, put its feelers out in, it's not a Copenhagen title, uh, title it's from the rather more conservative mainland, Jutland, but 
uh, its sources in Copenhagen have told us that uh, as of 6 p.m. continental time this evening, Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen is ready to reopen Denmark. And the meat of this is behind a paywall, but other Den Danish titles have summarized this supposed scoop uh, as trailing. We'll see whether it turns out to be true this evening or not, that Denmark, uh, on the advice, as usual, with Western governments, advice of public health committees is going to remove COVID status as a socially significant disease. In other words, it's going to do what Britain did at the very start of the COVID uh, crisis in March 2020 or thereabouts and remove it from the uh, list of infectious diseases. The Netherlands have a, no, uh, a similar setup with the A list of diseases, and that's been very controversial, COVID's status on that. But Denmark tends to be near the front of the pack for liberalisation uh, in European terms. We will see. This could be a bellwether that the continent is about to go the same way as the Anglo territories and start loosening up. Yes. Well, look, Alex, from the very beginning of this, we have been questioning uh, the death statistics and the labelling of people as being COVID deaths um, and the question of whether somebody died as a direct result of uh, a coronavirus infection or whether they died as a result of some other uh, illness, but because they had been tested positive via PCR, uh, that they were being labelled as coronavirus deaths. Um, we the, the headline figure, of course, is 100. 160,000, something like that. But uh, earlier, end of 2020 or so, early 2021, we were saying actually, based on our analysis, it was much more likely to be around the 20,000 mark. Um, what, what's the latest? This is a table based on Office for National Statistics, ONS data. It's United Kingdom wide. It's been tweeted out, by, and among others, by Dr. Sam White, who's called it the table I never thought I'd see. It's entitled The Number of Deaths Where COVID-19 Was the Only Cause Mentioned on the Death Certificate. It's for the latter 11 months of, uh, actually, it's for nearly two years, sorry. It's the 1st of February 2020, so it's even more statistically valuable, to the 31st of December 2021, so a 22-month a, a uh, snapshot. Uh, by broken down by sex and age group. If we just ignore sex and look at age group, we'll see that from the start of COVID until New Year's Eve just gone, uh, among newborns, one was reported to have died of COVID only. Among one to fours, one was reported to have died of COVID only. Uh, I won't read them all out, but we get to my age group, the early 40s. There is 187 people in Britain that died of COVID only in nearly two years, up to the freshly retired, the 65 to 69s, still under 2,000 there, 1,587. Uh, when you get over 70, just over 2,000, and the 90 pluses, the nonagenarians have 6,183. Uh, so I, I haven't accumulated all that to see whether it equates to the 17,000 odd figure that's been banded about recently, but it looks off the top of my head about right. Uh, so there we are. We're in the low tens of thousands for COVID only deaths, deaths of COVID incontrovertibly in Britain. Yes. Um, and, and that isn't a headline. That isn't a headline on any of the papers. It's not a BBC headline. No, of course not. And uh, But uh, the other thing, if we can just put that table back on screen for one second, the other point that we were making from the beginning was that the profile of people who were being labelled as COVID deaths was identical to the profile of people that were dying as a result of normal life. Um, and, and that table absolutely shows that very clearly, doesn't it? Uh, and our point was that it could not therefore be labelled as a pandemic, because if we look at the last major pandemic that they keep uh, talking about, which is the 1918 uh, Spanish flu, um, the average age of death on that was in the 20s. Uh, the average age of death uh, from COVID is in the 80s. Uh, because COVID seems to be behaving like uh, 
uh, normal life. Alex? It does seem to be uh, pretty much uh, an artifact of your age, doesn't it? Plain and simple. Uh, we'll get on to Mike Eden later, but he notes that two of the most, well, uh, one of the most severe and one of the more liberal European countries in COVID terms, Sweden and Germany, have both actually uh, coughed up their statistics. And in neither of those countries has a single child been reported to have died of rather than with COVID. Uh, Britain apparently does have one infant, uh, one toddler, uh, one primary school age and two, uh, two or five actually secondary school age. But that's the numbers we're talking about, you know, a, a handful per jurisdiction. Yes. Um, OK, well, we'll continue the comedy now. And uh, yesterday, uh, James Will uh, had a couple of guests on, including uh, somebody from Full Fact. Uh, let's just have a listen to a short excerpt. Let's uh, let's bring a caller, David, who's in Leicester. On he's got something to say. David, you're on the air. Hello, Mr. Fact Check. Who checks that your facts are correct? Also, uh, don't was, be intimidated, uh, Abbas. No, no, Just, no. I'm not you know, get to the point, David, or you're also, going. It's entirely up also, to you. Somebody, somebody I know, quoted a fact from a government website and was checked by the fact checkers and was banned off YouTube, and they had their channel removed merely for quoting government statistics. That they yeah. Tell me the name of the person. Tell me the fact. Do you have any idea? Uh, it was UK Column, who were uh, an excellent news channel with their own website. Never heard of them. Do you, uh, sorry, just, just stop a minute. Stop a minute. Do you know about this um, website yeah. or not? I don't yeah, okay, UK, UK Column, um, I mean, have said things that are just patently not true in the past. Yeah. Um, during during the uh, initial rollout of the vaccine, sort of December, January, um, you know, twenty twenty to twenty twenty one, they basically were saying that all of the deaths we were seeing from COVID itself were vaccine deaths. Now that's a complete another lie from from Abbas. Uh, and, and well, I, he's he's conflating, isn't he? But to produce a lie, he's yes, conflating what we. Yes, so Abbas from Full Fact there and and uh, absolutely not telling the truth. Uh, Jim's will. Uh, Alex, I don't know what, what you can say about the, the body language there, but I've been told that uh, when somebody when somebody draws their finger under their nose like that, they're feeling uncomfortable. They're certainly not necessarily telling the truth. So um, he would perhaps knew a bit more about the UK column he was suggesting. But anyway, uh, the, the point here is that uh, Abbas wasn't entirely telling the truth either. Uh, and I just want to highlight this article that we've published this morning uh, from Ian Davis uh, called Fact Check. The title is Fact Check, Full Facts Claims About the Nuremberg Code. So this was just by coincidence uh, that uh, we happened to publish this at the same time. Uh, maybe Mr. Will might like to read it and, and come back to us with his thoughts. Uh, but Ian will be on the program with us on Friday to, to talk about this and to talk much more about what uh, was discussed on the, on the wider James Will interview there because... Uh, Full fact said quite a bit more, uh, and I strongly recommend people join us on Friday for that because it's going to be uh, quite interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, full fact, of course, sit there as if they are, well, you know, the world standard on reporting supposedly truth and facts and evidence. And this couldn't be further from the truth because, of course, we've still got no reply over their relationship with ONS. ONS didn't want to reply to our freedom of information about the exchange of, of co-optees between full fact and ONS. So they're a very shadowy organisation and very, very close to government. Yes. Should, should we trust full fact? 
Well, folk fact, I think. Yes, absolutely not. And read Ian's article and you'll see why. But now, uh, uh, antivirals have been in the news over the last number of months. Debbie was talking about it on uh, Monday's programme. Uh, we've been reporting uh, Molnupiravir for a little while. Uh, I can't remember exactly when it was that uh, June Rain here was uh, 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 announcing the um, authorization for Molnupiravir as the brand name uh, Legevrio. Um, but this was her, I think, a few months ago saying, following a rigorous review of the data by our experts, scientists and clinicians, we are satisfied that uh, Legevrio is safe. Um, so satisfied, in fact, that the government has decided to run uh, or a, a massive trial. Um, so it's called the Panoramic Trial. Here it is. Help find effective early treatments for COVID-19. And there are two drugs uh, being used in this trial. One is Molnupiravir and the other one is uh, Ritonavir. Uh, otherwise known as Paxlovid, and I believe that's a Pfizer product. Um, so adults uh, over the age of 50 or with underlying health conditions uh, who test positive for COVID-19 are being urged to sign up for this COVID-19 study, and this is to inform the government uh, on what to do with these antivirals. Uh, the government and leading charities, including Kidney Care UK, Cystic Fibrosis Trust, Diabetes UK, the British Liver Trust, are calling on at least 6,000 or more participants to come forward for these cutting edge treatments uh, through the panoramic study. Uh, this is so that expert scientists can understand more about how to deploy these treatments uh, in the NHS and, the and more widely later in the year, uh, including who would benefit most from receiving them. Uh, and uh, so let's just have a look at what some of the slides that go with this. Um, so this is uh, from Nuffield Department of Primary Hair Care Health Sciences. What does being on panoramic evolve for participants? Uh, the trial looks like will depend on several factors. Uh, the arm you're randomized to. So they're talking about arms. Uh, I can't believe that there's any sort of attempt to sort of, you know, suggest vaccination here, but they talk about the arms. Let's have a look at the arms in more detail here. Participants will be randomized to either uh, one arm, which is ran usual care, standard NHS care, independent of the trial, or IMP. Uh, novel antiviral agents included in the trial. This may change over the course of the study. Well, my, my first question, just seeing that as it is on screens, first time I've seen it, is usual care, standard NH care, independent of the trial. There is no NHS well, care which is independent of, of anything to do with vaccines. Oh, well, this is uh, this is this, and COVID. Well, but the point is that it's not part of the trial, so they won't be getting the drugs. Uh, but standard NHS care these days, what does that mean? There isn't any NHS care to be had. Uh, let's have a look at the, the various arms, the antiviral treatment arm. Uh, and uh, you'll receive a telephone call from a trial doctor or research nurse to confirm you've received the study materials and so on. I'm not going to go into massive detail on this. Uh, and then there's uh, details for what to do if you're not completing daily diaries. Uh, and uh, also all arms get uh, various uh, communications three and six months after they start the study. But look, here's the thing. Uh, when this was originally announced, when the approval by the MHRA was originally announced, we highlighted this article on Forbes, Supercharging New Viral Variants, The Dangers of Molnupiravir, Part 1. And just to remind everybody, this is written by uh, William A. Heseltine. Uh, he, is, uh, he was for 20 years professor at Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of Public Health. He founded two academic research departments, the Division of Biochemical Pharmacology and the Division of Human uh, Retrovirology. And he says that he's perhaps uh, most well known for his work on cancer, HIV, genomics, and now COVID-19. So this, isn't, this is 
uh, somebody that the mainstream media would put forward as a serious expert, right? And uh, what's he saying in this trial? Well, first of all, he's saying uh, that uh, there are two main dangers here, uh, that monopiravir uh, may mutate and create more variants. Well, we've just seen on the on the uh, at the beginning of the program, it's not just more variants; it's now subvariants as well. So, so um, a widespread trial pushing out these drugs, and then widespread distribution of these drugs. This is potentially going to give uh, government all kinds of narratives going forward, uh, and so on. Um, and uh, and then you know the, the other point that he's making here: uh, two key uh, two key concerns. He says the first is the drug's potential. Uh, well. Mutagenicity. Yes, so it's cancer causing. And this is really highlighted, for example, from this, uh, this particular scientific paper. Uh, the fact that although they are suggesting that, that this drug works with SARS-CoV-2, um, it also causes potentially cancer in mammalian cells. Um, and so whenever they were announcing uh, molnupiravir in the first place, Dr. Simon Clark from the University of Reading said, uh, it's worth noting that people involved in the trial, the original trial, uh, uh, were instructed to abstain from heterosexual sex or else to use contraception. Uh, while this is routine practice for some other medicines, such as cancer chemotherapy, it suggests that the drug molnupiravir has the potential to cause birth defects uh, should someone become pregnant. And so what I find very interesting about the, the slides from Nuffield with this new trial that we're talking about here is this particular graphic. Um, day one, participant, participants receiving an antiviral treatment. For all participants on an antiviral treatment arm uh, and of childbearing potential, a trial team member will contact you to confirm the pregnancy test included in the trial pact has been completed and that results uh, are negative before you begin taking any yes. study medication. So they're worried. So they're worried. There is a concern about this. Um, and, and as I say, just to, to say the second part, if, you've, if there's, there were two parts to this article in Forbes, uh, and uh, the next, the second part was called Harming Those Who Receive It, The Dangers of Moldaparavir. I strongly suggest people read that. Um, and if you're thinking about taking part in the trial, then you might want to read that first. Yeah, and Mike, we're back on the, obviously, the safety of pharmaceutical products, safety of vaccines, all the, these new drugs. And a little bit later, we're going to be back on the subject of the fact that the MHR, the regulatory safety body, absolutely failing to take any safety action whatsoever. Um, Alex, uh, Mike Eden. Mike Eden gave testimony, as we reported previously, uh, to the Stiftung Corona Ausschuss, the German extra-parliamentary inquiry led by Rainer Filmich and Viviana Fischer at the beginning of the month. And we have now managed, with care and attention, it took a while, to transcribe and put up part two. And very shortly, the central and most important section, which probably, if you're watching on repeat, will already be up by then, part three, the transcript with the full slide deck interspersed of the hot lots section, where he talks about the inexplicably hundreds of times more toxic doses in certain batches than others, which, uh, as he can say more than anyone other, should not happen. Uh, and in fact, in part two, as well as part three, uh, Eden talks about the pregnant women issue as well. Yes, what just flashed on screen is something to accompany that. He uh, uh, recommends that people go to howbad.info to check, particularly with regard to the USA, where this data comes from that he's presenting. Howbad.info shows if you can find out what batch you were administered a jab from, uh, how relatively poorly it performs. The core of part two, which is already up as we go speak live at uh, lunchtime, 
uh, is that he points out that VAERS, uh, much like the MHRA's yellow card system for Britain and UDRA vigilance for Europe, VAERS, uh, five-sixths of the adverse effects reports filed in VAERS are by medical professionals, not by the public, as we're often uh, misled to believe in a talking point. Uh, he also talks repeatedly about his concern that he doesn't know, after 32 years at the top of the industry, what design is actually involved in the uh, Novid Koval jabs. Uh, he's, he repeatedly points at that from different angles uh, and says that uh, we should bear in mind, re returning to the theme of pregnant women getting the jab, the thalidomide scandal uh, and what was learned from that. Don't jab pregnant women, uh, or if you need them on a trial, insist that they use good contraception. Uh, all this has gone by the board. He makes many more points. The most striking to me in part two, I think, was that he was saying that these shots are toxic by design because by choosing to focus on the external part only, the spike protein uh, line of, of defense uh, or, or teaching the body to use that line of defense, these jabs are, as he says, a thousand times more dangerous than others would be because of the inherent toxicity. Now, speaking to that point more generally is the Yale epidemiologist, Dr. Harvey Risch, who recently in testimony on Capitol Hill pointed this out. He made a slight mistake in the clip we're about to see. He called Public Health England, Public Health UK. Of course, uh, people outside Britain are not usually aware that we have a four nations healthcare system now. He's talking about Public Health England late last year, now formerly known as the UK Health Security Agency. But he's talking about the figures here and uh, comparing or rather drawing a conclusion that since these jabs, as Yeadon says in part two that's just up, since these jabs only and specifically target spike protein, which Yeadon thinks is a bad design decision, uh, therefore it's a bit inexplicable and weird that Public Health England's statistics are now showing that people's other immunological response is compromised once they've had the job jab compared with those who haven't. Let's listen to this brief clip of Dr. Harvey Risch of Yale. Public Health UK has actually published a statement about this in their week 42 uh, weekly report that showed that people who've had COVID and then get vaccinated have lower levels of anti-nucleocapsid uh, antibodies. And this means, and since the vaccines don't address the nucleocapsid antigens, they only address the spike. It means that they're doing something that's damaging the immune response in a more general way than just what they do with the spike. And this is empirical data that Public Health UK has published. So we know that the, this is happening. It's not a theoretical issue about all of the niceties of, of laboratory biology and virology of things that could happen. It's a real thing that's been really observed by their testing. So this is being noted even by those whom the US Congress wants to testify as top of the epidemiological profession. He's pointing out, look, this is only supposed to be a design or rather two designs because it's mRNA or DNA, depending on which manufacturer. These designs have all made a design, design decision to go only for the spike protein expression. And yet the general immunological picture of those who've received them is now suppressed compared with those who remain unjabbed. Yes, and of course, uh, as the Doctors for COVID Ethics uh, group have shown, um, and, and particularly the, the German, sorry, his name escapes me at the moment, the German uh, uh, um, doctor that's... Uh, no, 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 the German doctor that's talking about the, uh, the autopsies, uh, and he's making the point that it wants to spike protein from, from whatever source from the vaccine uh, gets into other parts of the body that it isn't really supposed to get into because maybe a jab was given 
in an appropriate way, it got into the bloodstream or it got into some other part of the body, then that's causing significant damage. That's Dr. Arno Burkhard. Yes, you. he's pointed that out. Yes. And of course, he was showing the slides, so, yes. uh, the cell slides to demonstrate what he was talking about. Absolutely. OK, well, let's come back onto the subject of safety and, and uh, our very own MHRA that should be protecting the public from damage from pharmaceutical products and, uh, and from vaccine damage. Firstly, just remind what we covered yesterday on the news, and that was um, somebody who, was kindly, who kindly shared an email that they'd been in dialogue with their chief executive about statistics to do with vaccinations, COVID and vaccinations and problems. And it was clear from the email that the manager was completely unaware um, about uh, the real evidence. And I'm not surprised because, of course, if he's just watching the BBC or he's reading the main uh, press, he's not going to get the correct information, some of which we are covering today. Um, but we also had this, which was the MHRA responding that when you ask the critical questions about where the proof is that the vaccinations are safe, uh, you are branded vexatious. And this particular viewer um, said it's, it's amazing when you look at the terms, how vague they are in the responses. OK, so remembering that, let's uh, jump to this because it's our old friend, the BBC. Several people contacted us today to say how horrific they found this report by the BBC. Let's just bring up the text first of all. It says, back on the COVID wards, how is the NHS coping now? And uh, it says the World Health Organization's special envoy on COVID-19 has said that light is at the end of the tunnel for the UK. Well, certainly would be if the true uh, figures that we've just shown came out right. Um, but British officials remain cautious because of the high number of unvaccinated people estimated to be around 5 million. So this is the BBC ramming in the pro propaganda that you need to be uh, vaccinated. And on the page that you can find this particular BBC report on the right hand side is a little list of further video clips, which we're calling clickbait propaganda. Let's have a look at the video that was the main part of this article. I'm only just going to show a little bit of it because it was truly very bad indeed. Unvaccinated, 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 and unvaccinated. So this ward down here, all the way along there, full of patients this time last year. Does it make you angry? Uh, it's, I think it's mixed emotions. COVID isn't universally the only disease where people make poor decisions. Right. But it's resources that we're using to treat people we don't have to. Big breath in, tight seal, and cough. COVID vaccines have now allowed many millions to breathe easy in the pandemic, relieving pressure on the NHS. But Gonan Haims, a once healthy 58-year-old, chose another path that nearly killed him. I was close to death. So why did you not take the vaccine? Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. So you were just worried about this thing being put in your arm? Uncertainty. Better take the vaccine. Better take the vaccine. I think so. 
uh, for our viewers, I had to stop the clip there because I found this absolutely so offensive. And uh, I think many people will feel for that uh, gentleman in the bed. But what is he saying? He didn't really know. And of course, he didn't know anything about vaccines because uh, the government and the MHRA are denying the public the truth about benefits from vaccines and the risks from vaccines despite the fact that the NHS says every patient should know both the risks and the benefits. So let's come back on to the scam that uh, is the MHRA policy on this. How does the scam safety scam work? Well, it's very simple as we're going to show. But let's remember this bit that, of course, this scam would not work if the BBC in particular was not repeating it over and over again as if uh, everything is okay. So this is essentially how it works. In the centre, the MHRA claims to be the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, and it is constantly claiming that it collects, monitors and regulates pharmaceutical healthcare products and vaccines to ensure the public is safe. This is the claim which is constantly made. Uh, we then discover that under 10% of reported vaccine adverse reactions are collected under the MHRA's yellow card system. That is their statement on their own website, but they claim that they're collecting the adverse reactions in order to then analyse them and keep us safe. But of course, if we look at what they're doing, they are absolutely failing to carry out that quantitative risk assessment on the yellow card adverse reaction data in order to prove whether the vaccines are safe or in fact, whether to prove they're not safe. So the MHRA claims to be protecting safety, but it does not do the risk assessment which is necessary to make the claim that it is keeping us safe. And of course, this little merry-go-round of spin and lies could only take place um, can only take place with the full support of organisations like the BBC and other journalist outlets in the UK. Can I prove this to you? Well, let's have a look at this bit because uh, somebody was kind enough to send us in a letter from the MHRA. This is from December 2021. And of course, it's a letter in response to questions about the safety of vaccines. So what we've done very quickly is to break the letter down into segments so that you can see how this works. So Paragraph one and two are essentially padding. Thank you for your email um, regarding the number of injuries and deaths that have been reporting. That's, that's opening is padding. As you are aware, we collect reports of, sus of suspected side effects to the COVID-19 vaccines, including those with a fatal outcome via the yellow card scheme. So this is a statement of the obvious. So the first two statements we can dismiss because they're padding and they're a statement of the obvious. The person who wrote the question clearly knew about the system, so they don't need the MHRA to tell them. So let's go on to three, and this is where it starts to get interesting. And we've labelled this spin padding because we've got an unsubstantiated claim of safety performance. Our role is to continue monitor safety during widespread use of a vaccine. We have in place a proactive strategy to do this, which can be assessed using the link above. It includes a number of complementary approaches which supplement the safety monitoring conducted via the yellow card system. And it goes on to say that uh, further details of these methods can be found in the COVID-19 vaccine surveillance strategy. We also take into account international experience. We work closely 
with our public health partners. So this is all cotton wool because there is no factual evidence demonstrating anything to do with safety. And if we go on to uh, paragraph four, it now gets interesting because we're into deliberately false and misleading claims. It is important to note the vaccination is the single most effective way to reduce deaths and severe illness from COVID-19. But there is no evidence to support their claim because they haven't done the research into the safety uh, or indeed the efficacy of the vaccines in order to make this claim. It then goes on to talk about side effects and uh, that these need to be balanced against expected benefits, not actual benefits, but expected. So this is a paragraph full of false misleading information and it's come straight from the MHRA. Um, I'm sorry, I might have a duplication of the, uh, no, sorry, I'll just highlight this for you so that we can see the key bits if you uh, hold this on the screen. And then we jump on to the next uh, one here. Um, now we've got a circular argument going on and uh, we'll highlight a bit of this. It's also very important to appreciate that just because a yellow card has been submitted reporting a sus suspected adverse reaction to the vaccine, it does not necessarily mean that the vaccine caused the reaction. Well, this is the whole point of what we're trying to find out from, uh, from them themselves is what has been done in order to make statements that the vaccines are safe. And of course, there's no new evidence in the letter from the MHRA. It's just a circular argument about safety. If we go to paragraph six, um, what we've got is more of the circular argument. In your email, you also mentioned that previous vaccination campaigns had been halted or withdrawn due to injuries or death with far less reports than we're experiencing. It's, sorry, I beg your pardon, let me come back to that. Should be able to highlight, highlight this. It should be noted that it's not possible to draw any conclusions from comparisons of the COVID-19 vaccines and previous vaccination programs. So if you can't draw conclusions with previous pro programs, what we need to do is actually have the information on the existing program, but we don't have that information. And then it goes on to put a little bit more smokescreen in there are a range of factors that can lead to variable reporting. And if we go to seven, then we're back into unsubstantiated misleading safety claims. Overall, the number and nature of suspected adverse reactions reported so far is not unusual for an immunization program. And the data we publish and analyze tells us that the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine is as expected based on the robust clinical trial data. So now they're going back to rely on what the pharmaceutical companies have to say, not on what their own um, investigation has done. And they're saying it's not unusual for an immunization program, but the previous paragraph said you can't compare COVID vaccinations with previous programs. So this is stuff and nonsense. And when we get to paragraph eight, we can see that this is signed by Dr. Alison Cave, who's the chief safety officer. And what have we got here? A false meaningless platitude. Once again, please be reassured that any safety concerns identified from our review will be communicated with as soon as possible. Alex, I'm just going to ask you to focus on that sentence. I'll read it again. Once again, please be reassured that any safety concerns identified from our review 
will be communicated with as soon as possible. What is this lady actually saying in that sentence? Well, if you keep that on screen, that's a hanging preposition. Right? There's two ways, I'm fairly experienced in how people draft this stuff now, uh, two ways this could have come about. One is the ideal, sorry, idiomatic way. Um, has the so-and-so been communicated with? If that phrase was in Dr. Cave's mind, then it would be a giveaway, a tell, that she was going to say uh, somebody behind the scenes is going to be tipped off. That's one possibility. The other is that this comes from a draft in which, or another document behind the scenes, in which uh, concerns will be communicated with, and then an entity was mentioned. That would have been grammatical, and it may in that case have been lifted into this public letter, publicly available letter, and at the last minute, uh, the entity to whom this stuff would be communicated was deleted, so the public would be none the wiser. Those are the two possibilities from my fairly extensive experience of how documents get bungled. Right, thank you for that. Well, let's bring the lady on screen because here she is, Dr. Alison Cave, MHRA Chief Safety Officer. Uh, I think we need to ask some questions. Did the lady write that letter because she was misinformed? Is she simply ignorant of what's actually going on? Is she incompetent? That's certainly a possibility. Or is she complicit in the cover-up by the MHRA? That's a possibility. Possibly she's being threatened. She's in a position where she has to write this or perhaps she loses her job. So we need to be asking the question, why would the head of safety at MHRA fail to report the evidence truth about vaccine adverse reactions? And let's remind people that if you go to the yellow card report on the front page of the UK Column website, you can search MHRA data, um, but there is still no quantitative risk assessment by HR, MHRA. So this is a scam, Mike. There is no other way of putting it because the claim they make that they have investigated the safety is so far unproven. Yes, and uh, you know it's saying 1,954 deaths there from vaccination. They would say there's no correlation proven between those deaths and the vaccine themselves. Uh, but of course, they're not actually doing any kind of uh, uh, follow-up or uh, post-mortem examination to establish whether or not there was uh, a death directly as a result of the vaccine. Um, <clears throat> but that 1,954 number doesn't seem very large compared to the 160,000 uh, number that keeps band being bandied about by the mainstream press for the number of people that have died from COVID. Uh, but of course, it becomes significantly more significant if it's compared to the 10 or 20,000 that, uh, that Alex was talking about at the, uh, a few minutes ago on the programme. Right. And it's interesting, Mike, that if we take the MHRA's own admission that possibly only 10% of the yellow card reports are made. Uh, so that 1,954 figure becomes 19,000, where we're now back in a very interesting bracket. Right, and if we just put that back on screen for a second, then we, we look at the, uh, the left-hand column there, which is the number of case, cases reported to the MHRA yellow card scheme, and the middle column, which is the number of actual reactions. And over the months that we've had this, uh, uh, website up. Many, many people have asked what the difference is between those two numbers. Well, of course, the thing is that the, uh, each case that's reported may have more than one reaction. Um, and there's no way from the data published by the MHRA to draw any correlation between combinations of reactions uh, and so on. Uh, but the other thing is 1.429 million 
uh, adverse reactions on the database so far. Um, and again, we have no idea, uh, because the MHRA isn't saying, uh, how many of those have been life-changing reactions. Yeah. And so it's not just about the number of people that have actually died uh, on that table. It's also the number of people that have had life-changing paralysis uh, or blindness or, or deafness or heart conditions that yeah. prevent them from pursuing their careers or, or any of these kinds of things. So uh, there is a lot of information to pull out of this data and the MHRA isn't doing it. Yeah. A lot of questions to be asked. Okay, Alex, uh, what's Dr. Ellie Murray tweeting about? They do say it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. And uh, for the, shall we say, more um, communicating of the members of the epidemiological academic profession, there is quite a lot of hay to be made. So Dr. Ellie Murray is British Canadian, but she's in New England. So she's a fellow or local epidemiologist to the gentleman we just played a clip of. She's in Boston not at Harvard, but down the road at Boston University's School of Public Health, where she's an assistant professor. And she is not camera shy. Um, she likes to be known as a science communicator. I would venture to suggest nine parts communication to one part science. But here she is in her Twitter handle, Epi Ellie. She knows how to steal the limelight. And uh, here is her public health assessment uh, of the COVID situation. Prolonged pandemics have historically been accompanied by cultural change. What if we could use this pandemic to undo the cultural homogenization that white supremacy and colonialism have forced upon the world? Be bold. Choose what your future looks like. Uh, how much science is in that tweet, I wonder? Uh, Never nice, mind. Nice round number, I think, Alex. <laughs> yes, you could put it that way. And before I forget to say it, also Dr. Yeadon's third part, which will be up later today, we expect, um, is lengthy. And the whole point there is also quality of data, as you were just mentioning. So um, he is fairly out on a limb, to be honest. We don't want to hide to beat about the bush about that. He's fairly convinced that he's got prima facie evidence of criminality because of the extreme differences between lots of COVID jabs in terms of adverse reactions booked in, in VAERS. There are others, and we've provided a link at the top of part three to, to some of them, who are crunching through this on statistical blogs who say, actually, with, there's such garbage in the uh, stuff fed into theirs, the, bat, the batch numbers or lot numbers, uh, that we can't be categorically sure yet. We are sounding that note of caution. Unlike the mainstream media, we do allow nuances here. But uh, Dr. Yeadon's position is, if it is confirmed that the lot numbers are accurate, then we have you know, eye-popping orders of magnitude more uh, uh, amounts of adverse reactions, serious ones, life-changing ones, as he says, as you've just said too, then we, that we have more of those than we should have in the orders of hundreds more. So we'll see. Okay, well, on let's... Canada. Uh, yes, move on to Canada, Alex. Yes, I'm trying to put uh, a, a miniature selection of five eyes or Anglo-Saxon countries developments in most weeks uh, without neglecting the European continent because everything's going in tandem uh, in the five eyes at the moment. Uh, so here we have, to my knowledge, the, uh, the first clip of uh, a law enforcement officer in any of the Anglo-Saxon countries putting, face, uh, putting name to face on camera, giving their name and rank and saying they stand with protesters or they're going to, uh, to uh, ensure that, uh, that, that protests against COVID tyranny are policed lawfully. So uh, people will be aware that there is a media blackout on the Canadian truckers descending upon the federal capital, Ottawa at the moment. Now um, in nearby Ontario, uh, this is the uh, clip that was put up by a lady who I think should be the first of many in all the Five Eyes countries uh, following the European continent where police have, to be fair, been quite ahead of us uh, in, in, uh, in voicing their concerns. 
Hi there. Uh, so I'm Constable Aaron Howard, um, coming to you from Ontario, Canada. I just, I really wanted to give a shout out to all the truckers. I think what you guys are doing is incredible. Um, you're fighting for our rights and freedoms. And uh, right now it feels like we're a little bit at war and those rights and freedoms are at stake. So you guys are honestly true heroes. Uh, what you're doing is just incredible. Um, I will be in Ottawa when you guys roll in. I'm going to be speaking on behalf of Police on Guard and we are thrilled, thrilled and honored to be able to be there. I can't wait to meet you guys. Hope to talk to a lot of you in person. Anyway, just wanted to give you guys a shout out and some support and uh, keep rolling and we'll see you in Ottawa. Wow. So we do hope that Constable Erin Howard gets to keep her job, but even if she gets fired for this, she will have gone down as a constable, actually worthy of that job title, which in all the English-speaking countries means somebody who's locally empowered to keep the law, not a, a top-down executive law enforcement officer at all. So she's quite aware of her role there. Um, has the Canadian mainstream uh, press reported this? No, well, not exactly. So in a Pravda-like touch, the Vancouver Sun over on the West Coast where the truckers have also been out, uh, reports truckers are rallying in Vancouver. What are they demanding? They're demanding that the province of British Columbia make interior highways safer. There's a long screed there about truckers who've been overturned. I don't, don't doubt the veracity of it, uh, who've jackknifed on, on badly maintained icy roads in the Canadian winter and have nearly lost limbs as a result. Uh, there's not a squeak here about what the truckers are actually doing federally. And I believe that there's some in BC who are, who are on the local arm of those Ottawa protests as well, from what I can make out. So um, not a squeak. Uh, New Zealand, we won't get to except perhaps in extra time. But Australia has seen something rather interesting. Uh, the son of the founder of uh, a local branch in North Sydney of the governing Liberal Party. So back in the 1950s, the gentleman we're about to see, his father, was the founder of a, a branch of the Liberal Party, the equivalent of the Conservative Party in Britain. Uh, has rather dramatically resigned from that party and has endorsed uh, a gentleman who's running effectively as an independent uh, of Russian extraction who calls himself the Aussie Cossack. Uh, again, he makes himself here uh, the first politician at important local level, I would say, in an English-speaking country to come on, out, out on camera and say, I cannot take the COVID fascism uh, of my mainstream party, in his case, the governing party, though he's not at national level in politics. Uh, again, this is an encouragement to go ye and do likewise. Let's listen to this gentleman. I, Neil Bitter, Vice President of the Brookdale branch of the Liberal Party. My late father was one of its founders. Um, several years ago in the 1950s. I hereby resign from the Liberal Party because of its totalitarian and fascist behaviour towards people in relation to their medical integrity of their own bodies. Amen. We haven't seen anything like that in Britain yet, to my knowledge, have we, gentlemen? Uh, not that I'm aware of, no. But... Uh... <laughs> To the point, beautifully to the point. Um, okay, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Uh, there are options to help us out there. And uh, if you are watching the program for free, we do need your financial support and that would be very much appreciated. Also share uh, anything you find on the various platforms uh, and or if you would prefer to uh, support us by getting some 
stuff from the shop, that would be fantastic. That would be excellent. Uh, once again, I'm going to just bring up the fundraiser for David Notes. I, I am absolutely stunned at what's happened with this because £50,000 was a necessary but high target. Uh, so there's that figure, £47,030. Uh, 1,300 odd, odd people, I don't know the exact number, um, have donated. So we're just going to say a really big thank you to you. As soon as we can, we will give you an update on uh, David's um, legal situation. And uh, I can tell you that he is still thrilled to be out of prison and thus able to better fight and put together his de defence. And that's thanks, thanks to all the people who contributed. Um, okay, let's uh, move on to Russia and uh, the question of pressure on Russia. Now we've been talking about this over the last couple of days, but another day and another press release from NATO. So first of all, just to remind everybody, uh, Ben Wallace uh, heading over to Scandinavia uh, last week to encourage, well, what? Uh, certainly there's lots of noise in the mainstream media about the possibility of uh, of Scandinavian countries uh, joining NATO or getting very much closer to NATO. Uh, then on Monday, we had uh, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, NATO meeting the uh, Ministers of Foreign Affairs for Finland and Sweden. Uh, and also on Monday, uh, meeting up with uh, Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. Uh, and we were wondering whether they were all going to meet together. Well, of course, we don't know that exactly. Uh, but uh, it gets better because now Ben Wallace is today heading over to visit uh, the, uh, Jens Stoltenberg as well. So it's pretty clear, uh, Alex, to, to me at least, that, sorry, did you? Well, I, I, I was going to be really cynical. I hope there's not a cheese and wine party going well, on here. Well, I hope that's true. I hope that's true. But Alex, look, the question is, um, is this a serious attempt to, to get Scandinavian countries into NATO? Um, or, uh, and indeed, uh, is Britain leading this charge? Because that's how it seems to be at the moment. I have not seen anything in the continental press, even from the Dutch and the Danes, who in many ways are the most Anglo of the continental nations, especially in NATO terms. I've not seen anything even from them pushing for Sweden and Finland to join. Uh, likewise, the Irish Republic, which, as you very well know, Mike, is constitutionally required to stay out of alliances like NATO, has been prevailed upon uh, to make noises about Russian naval operations off its coast in the Atlantic. Um, and another country we could put in this bracket is Austria, constitutionally required because of the 1955 final settlement with, with the Allies to stay out of alliances. I think ultimately it's cosmetic. Well, for a start, Britain's pushing it for sure uh, in answer to that bit. Um, is it a, a PR exercise? Probably more of that. Uh, Sandamar in, in Finland and President Sauli Niinistö even have been saying, well, we're quite interested in joining NATO, but they're speaking personally. They know they cannot get it through their constitutional courts, in many cases, not even through their parliaments. I don't think Doyle Aaron to this day would vote for accession to NATO. But what need? If they're in the EU's PESCO, they are de facto NATO players anyway. And this gives Britain even more of an ability to pull strings because Britain, of course, is substantially in the EU's PESCO, even though it's left the EU. Uh, indeed. So, uh, so look, last week, I think it was on Friday last week, uh, here's Secretary of State uh, Blinken meeting Sergei. Uh, Lavrov, so US and uh, Russian meeting again. Uh, and in that meeting, uh, Blinken said that the United States would provide a written response to Russia about Russia's security concerns, particularly the uh, red line of Ukraine uh, joining NATO. Um, and uh, well, what has been the result of that? Well, that meeting took place. And then, as we mentioned on Monday's programme, uh, Liz Truss was 
immediately pushing out a statement from the, by the for, Foreign Office that uh, Russian activity in, is designed to uh, subvert Ukraine uh, because uh, and that Russia must de-escalate uh, and that Russia, the uh, Russian military incursion in Ukraine would be a massive strategic mistake. But they were going on to say that Russia was interfering directly in Ukrainian politics by working with uh, former prime ministers and former uh, deputy prime ministers in Ukraine. Well, the, uh, the Russians themselves have now pushed out a statement on this. and I just thought it was worthwhile working our way through what they said. Uh, they said the UK Foreign Office continues with a series of provocative statements on the situation around Ukraine, sidelined by its short-sighted policy from, a real, from the real diplomatic processes Britain sees its role is in con constantly stoking anti-Russian sentiments. The logic is simple. Let no day pass without accusing Russia of preparing an imminent invasion of Ukraine and on this concocted, concocted basis try to play the ideological leader of the free world defending itself from autocrats. Uh, these rallying cries come against the background of an obvious deterioration in British expertise on Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the words by Foreign Secretary Elizabeth Truss about Ukraine having suffered from various invaders, from the Mongols to the Tatars, the Tatars is, an, is one example. Uh, then came the news of Russia intending to establish a puppet regime in Kiev led by a former Ukrainian MP, one that happens to be under Russian sanctions for being a threat to national security. Uh, comical as these are, uh, now is not the time for laughing, uh, said the uh, release from the Russian ambassador. Uh, we're witnessing the actual professional level of people who, alongside making absurd statements, are providing Ukraine with lethal weapons, increasing their own military presence at Russian borders, and encouraging Kiev to further undermine the Minsk agreements. Uh, we're resolutely calling on London to stop the stupid rhetorical provocations, quite dangerous in the current heated situation, and to contribute to the genuine diplomatic efforts aimed at ensuring reliable guarantees of European security. And so I'm just wondering, Alex, is there anything in that that you actually disagree with? No, is the short answer. Uh, nearly 20 years ago now, 19 years ago in 2003, I spent a week shadowing the Foreign Office's Deep Russia experts, the Eastern Research Group. Um, I was uh, put up in a hotel for the week in Pimlico and shadowed them. So I was in the office with the two gentlemen who interpreted between Blair and Putin, uh, wrote the speeches that the, the, the Foreign Secretary would give to uh, to give Russia a shot across the, across the bows. Killing is spot on. Uh, these gentlemen have been shuffled off. Uh, in fact, the two names in question, whom I had high, high regard for, I only discovered a couple of years ago with David Scott's digging that they had been suborned by the Integrity Initiative in later years, after 2010. Uh, and so Truss has clearly got somebody who isn't in the Foreign Office Deep Specialist Unit, probably not even the Foreign Office's Russia desk officer, somebody in a political spin office writing this crud about Mongols and Tatars. Uh, the point Kellen is making there is that the Russians call the Mongol invasion the Tatar invasion. They're not two invasions. <laughs> Pretty obvious mistake there. Um, yeah, they, they, this, this is levels, orders of magnitude less Russia experience than we used to have. And, and Truss is the lightest of lightweights. Uh, of uh, of the current British cabinet. I think probably some of her cabinet colleagues have more knowledge of Russian history than she does. And she's supposed to be foreign secretary. Yes. Uh, and, and supposed to be potentially in the front running to replace Boris Johnson. Uh, maybe, maybe not, hopefully. Good grief. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good grief says it all. Yes. Yeah. Right. Now, on the United States side, it's not getting any better because, of course, we've got the rapid response mechanism. And that means that uh, whatever the narrative is in one G7 country, that's the narrative that's pushed out in the mall. So let's have a look on the. This is Bloomberg uh, from the US side. Uh, Putin could burst disease 
uh, Olympic dream with a war in Ukraine. Um, this particular article suggesting that uh, President Xi had asked Vladimir Putin not to invade Ukraine until after the Winter Olympics. Uh, it's just a pathetic uh, article, really. But TASS uh, headlined this, Chinese embassy in Russia debunks US media claim that Xi requested uh, Putin not to invade Ukraine. So, so you know, there's, I don't know what they're trying to do here. They're trying to suggest that, that there's, there isn't uh, agreement between uh, Russia and China. Maybe, maybe that's to encourage Americans to believe that it's safe to, uh, to attack Russia. I don't know. But just look at this headline from the mail. Countdown to war, question mark. Boris warns Putin invading Ukraine would be painful, violent and bloody as UK pulls Kiev embassy staff and US puts 8,500 troops on standby, but brazen Russia announces military exercises off Irish coast. And the, every day, and it's, the, the Russians are absolutely right, every day they, these headlines are being uh, rolled out. Now they have a little bit of video clip in this article of Boris using this kind of language. And then in the House of Commons, he was giving a briefing yesterday on the Ukrainian situation, uh, where he was basically, Alex, saying that if Russia, you know, was to invade uh, Ukraine, um, that the, 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 the damage that the Ukrainian military basically are, are extreme, would be extremely determined under those circumstances, and therefore it would be bloody for, for Russia. Is that a fair assessment? There are some Ukrainians who will fight like the clappers, quite clearly. Uh, over in the West, uh, sadly, they tend to be literal fascists, banderists. But there are some who would give their lifeblood to prevent one yard of Ukrainian soil falling, even the ethnic Russian East. Um, much more uh, mainstream, however, in Ukraine is, fair enough, patriotism for the historic idea of Ukraine, an idea which uh, the Russians are right to insist of covers only half the country not the southern flank and the eastern flank. But the, the general attitude is, one, we're trying to survive and buy food and get on the metro without being pestered, pestered for COVID papers. And two, they're trying to get their sons out of the draft. Uh, you know, Again, I'm not going to malign individual uh, Ukrainian artillery men, for example, or helicopter pilots, but uh, the drafting of the teenagers to serve as grunts is disastrous. You know, Anyone who's got the educational ability or the money gets out of that. So you're left frankly, with a large number of junkies and dropouts in the Ukrainian military. Uh, that is going to you know, be, be the, up against the Gru Spetsnaz, basically, on the, in the first week of the war. Uh, the Truss has been, you know, Biden-like, she's been uh, uttering these lines that her, her spooks have been telling her to say. And in the past, we would have kept this iron fist more, more carefully wrapped in the velvet glove, but now it's coming off. Truss has been saying, basically, watch it because the Ukrainians are going to put up a fight. It's clearly MI6 and the SAS who've been telling her to say that. Uh, so it's a repeat of the North Caucasus agenda that I saw for the last couple of decades, uh, overselling to our own establishment and foreign secretary and prime minister the idea that we've trained a crack resistance troop. That, that will fall apart. And, you know, Putin, I'm afraid, I know that Ukrainian viewers are going to write in again and call me a shill. But Putin, uh, and not just him personally, but anyone who would be Russian prime minister, is quite correct to point out that these uh, are Eastern Slav brother nations. You know, in, in, a, in practice, a number of the grunts facing off against each other, if they manage to you know, look each other in the whites of the eyes, are going to say, we're brothers, we speak practically the same, if not the same language, let's call it off. That is going to be a large slice of what happens, I think, on the battlefield. And yes, you, we should just correct, you mean president there, as opposed to prime minister? Uh, yes, sorry, yes, I said uh, yeah. uh, president, uh, Prime Minister, but I meant President, yeah. yeah. Alex, I'm really pleased that, that you've actually said that because we know that we've got an audience in Ukraine as well as, as Russia. 
And at the end of the day, what we're doing is analysis to warn everybody in that area that somebody is uh, clearly working to stir up a violence to help foment a war. And anything we can do to stop that is going to help people, whether they're Ukrainian or Russian. Yes, and I think the next tweet that I've uh, snapshotted will give us a bit of a, an inroads. We can't spend too long on this segment, but let's put it this way. Darren Grimes is one of these young, small-c conservative social media figures who is being fated, I would say, beyond his ability, beyond his natural catchment. Uh, but here he is tweeting that he's genuinely confused at the position of those arguing that Britain shouldn't be sending Ukraine military equipment. Do you really think, he says, that Russia, once the West has turned away as it swallows Ukraine, there's his first error, uh, most forecasts would be that Russia would take a chunk of eastern and southern Ukraine. Do you think it would stop there? The hint is that they'd come right up to the channel. Once a bully gets your pocket money, Grimes says, it comes back for more. But right, let's take, in classic Greek philosophical style, let's take the best possible position that Mr. Grimes might be representing. Let's say that he is say, um, putting putting up a sort of uh, a Churchill versus Chamberlain argument of don't uh, don't appease a tyrant. Fair enough. Let's park any disbelief there. Let's go with a section of our Ukrainian viewers now uh, and say, Mr. Putin's a very bad man. He wants to control the whole of Slavdom. OK, what's the difference between this fundamentally and Britain arming Poland in 1939? OK, let's let's agree the mainstream version of history. Uh, the Nazis called us caused the Second World War, which I don't agree with. Uh, the city of London wanted it to happen. But let's say the Nazis were bad men, which they were. And let's say they were off, uh, uh, acting off their own uh, spontaneous uh, block, which they weren't. Should Britain have been secretly and openly, and by the way, we could say the same about Britain, France, Serbia in 1914, should we have been arming that chauvinistic interwar Polish regime, which was mistreating Germans in, within its own territory? Of course not. And whether you're dealing with Poland, Ukraine, Estonia, Georgia, any of the more Western facing countries in that whole belt between Germany and Russia that always say, at least in the political level, it's your job to come to ride to our rescue. Uh, we have to face that down and say, no, we will not go to war with you or you. Uh, sort yourselves out. You may have to live in a buffer zone dominated by Germany and or Russia, but we're not going to go to war on your behalf. Uh, when you reduce it to that basic, I think that Mr. Grimes doesn't really have a leg to stand on, because even in the best possible representation of his position, he is saying we must start World War Three for a faraway nation. And that's a deliberate um, insinuation on my part, a deliberate allusion to the uh, the Czechoslovakia speech in 1938 of the faraway country. Uh, yeah. So, Alex, uh, you know, we have we have seen um, we have seen over the last uh, two years with respect to COVID the pushing of fear in the mainstream press. And I'm really sorry, I'll put it on Friday's program, but somebody sent me uh, a local uh, a report in the local uh, newspaper, online newspaper, uh, talking about what would what would happen to our our uh, town if there was a nuclear bomb fell? Uh, what would happen if to our town if the nuclear bomb hit the ground or if it blew up uh, in the atmosphere? And and it was it was showing with a, an interactive uh, map how this would affect the local people. And it was clearly designed to instill fear. Uh, well, let's uh, have a look at what's been going on in a uh, junior school. Uh, this is uh, Burnt Oak Junior School. Uh, what have they been up to? This is not the larger Burnt Oak in North London. This is a place of the same name on the Kent-London boundary. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, just when the school resumed after New Year, this went out to the parents of the year six children. That's the 10-year-olds. 
Dear parents and carers, uh, here comes a bit of horrible jargon, for the children's entry point, they will be imagining they are people who are moving away from the place where they live. So uh, even to the parents, they're not saying refugees. They're putting it in 10-year-old language. Before they come to school, by the way, this letter is not by the, the, the director of the school or the head, headmaster, it's by the um, year six team, so the, the managers of the 10-year-olds specifically. Before they come to school on the morning of Wednesday, the 5th of January, please could you tell them they have five minutes to fill a small bag, day bag size, with the things they would take with them if they were leaving home for good. When the children get to school, I wonder what kind of journey to school they will have had, uh, they will, we will tell them that they will be pretending there is an emergency in the country and they have to leave right there and then. It will take them a week to walk to a safe camp, is what they will be told. So imagine what that's going to do psychologically to a 10-year-old. But the group can travel together, of course, not with their parents. We will discuss the items that they have brought in their bags, blah, 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 blah. They will have to prepare a warm, waterproof shelter, which they can lay, sick, should be lie, lie, lie down in, and will become their home. Hugo Talks has done a reading of this letter with some very pertinent points made. We continue to be uh, in touch with Hugo Talks and appreciate his output very much and what he sends us. Uh, a viewer, in fact, I think a subscriber to my Telegram channel, t.me slash East app, or search for Eastern Approaches on Telegram. A viewer has uh, sent me this by way of a response by the school in question in Burnt Oak. Thank you for your recent concerns regarding a letter sent to the year six parents before Christmas. I would like to assure you that we are taking your points very seriously. It was never our intention to cause any anxiety or concern, but our aim was to encourage children and enable them to feel empathy towards issues faced in the world we live in today. We pride ourselves on the richness of our curriculum and believe it's important that children are immersed in the theme that they are studying, which means they have to be told they're going to flee for a week, and have living experiences of what they are learning about in school. If you have any further questions, please contact the school to meet with the head teacher. I think that's a boilerplate response, actually, although sent to an individual. Um, Brian, you tend to be uh, to take a lively interest in what primary school children are taught over the years. I don't know whether you've seen anything quite like this before. Uh, well, I, I do. I do remember seeing uh, one about uh, children having to respond to an event. I can't remember the school. That was from a few years ago. So I do remember something similar but what do i think of this i think it is wicked it is absolutely wicked and the most dangerous word in the in the opening letter from the school is imagine because what they are doing is playing with the children's minds they're instilling fear and anxiety and unrest unsettling ideas into the minds of these young children and i'm going to put it to our audience today that the people doing this know exactly what they are doing. It's not some sort of learning game for the children. This is a game designed to get at the minds and damage the minds of the children. Okay, well, you're next. Well, I'm gonna say I was so pr prompted by this slide that I chose to hold back part of my uh, 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 input to the news today uh, because I traveled some distance yesterday to meet a. Uh, an NHS doctor whistleblower. And uh, one of the key reasons that that person wanted to come forward was they said the children, what they are doing to the children. So as just a snapshot, because we're not ready to put the full interview up, uh, these were some of the comments from this unnamed individual. 
I can't go on like this. The deaths, the suffering, the lies, the indifference, the blind eyes, the cover-up of the real facts about COVID-19 and vaccine adverse reactions. The NHS was never swamped. Some wards and units, yes, but others were empty. It was no different to flu. And where did that go to? The death certificates were doctored. Where did the second doctor signing, the oversight go? And the vaccine damage? Why did trained professionals ignore the evidence of adverse reactions and follow the policy? Why don't NHS staff and GPs even know about the yellow card system? GP practices have been destroyed. Experienced GPs and staff just focusing on COVID data rather than patients with real problems. I had my first jab through fear as a friend of mine died of COVID. I had my second jab due to NHS pressure. Now they want a booster or I'm out. Clap for the NHS and then you get the sack. And the damage, the vaccine damage to the children, it's all against our oath of acting in the patient's best interest at all times. I can't work like this anymore. And colleagues get angry when you tell them the truth and show them the evidence. And uh, well, that small segment says it all. This person utterly distraught watching people's lives being damaged through not only the treatment for COVID, but the vaccines in particular. And of course, they were, um, they were focusing on the terrible harm to children. So the children being attacked in schools, their minds being attacked in schools, and when they're out and about, they're being attacked by this disastrous vaccine system for children. Mm. Um, okay, let's move on to cyber then. And well, good news, everybody, because uh, Britain has uh, launched its first government cybersecurity strategy. Apologies, it looks like uh, we got a font issue there. But anyway, uh, what are they talking about? They're saying Britain's public services will be strengthened to further protect them from the risk of being shut down by hostile cyber threats. And of course, Russia is the main uh, problem here. Uh, and this is according to Steve Barclay, who's the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. And he's going to announce the cyber threat that government and the wider public systems face in a speech today. Uh, and he's going to launch the government's uh, first ever government cyber security strategy. Um, the new strategy will be backed by £37.8 million invested to help local authorities boost their cyber resilience, uh, protecting the essential services and data on which citizens rely on including housing, sorry, rely on, including housing benefit, voter registration, electoral management, uh, and provision of social care. So let's just briefly look at what they uh, want to do. They're going to establish this new government cyber coordination center. I'm not quite sure how that works with the uh, cybersecurity center, but anyway, that's what they're going to do. And they say this is to better coordinate cybersecurity efforts across the public sector. It's going to build on successful private sector models, such as Financial Sector Cyber Collaboration Center, the GCCC, will rapidly identify, investigate, and coordinate the government's response to attacks on public sector systems. Uh, the center will be based in the cabinet office, what a surprise, <laughs> and will ensure that data is rapidly shared, uh, allowing us to, quote, defend as one, and defend as one has capital letters, so this is a new brand, trademark, yeah. a new trademark. Uh, a new cross-government vulnerability reporting service, uh, which will, will allow security researchers and members of the public to easily report issues they identify with public sector digital services. Um, a new, more detailed assurance regime for the whole of government, uh, which will in include robust assessment of 
De departmental plans and vulnerabilities, fantastic. Uh, what's next? Uh, 37.8 million pounds, as we mentioned, invention, uh, invested in local authorities for cyber resilience. Um, and uh, an innovative project to reduce government risk through culture change. Ah, maybe we get to the heart of it here. So there's going to be culture change. And this is going to be in partnership with businesses and academia. So this is more fusion doctrine at work. Uh, and uh, stepped up work to understand the growing risk from supply chains uh, of commercially provided products in government systems. In other words, no Huawei or any other uh, stuff like that. Ensuring security is a key part of procurement and working with industry on cyber vulnerabilities. Uh, Alex, I'm very interested in your thoughts on that. To my mind, this model is the repetition for cybersecurity, which would be the uh, gamekeeping uh, end of intelligence, uh, to what has already happened with the poaching end, the signals intelligence end, and other intelligence gathering. That already has, and has had for 90 years now, a cabinet office pool called the Joint Intelligence Committee, the JIC. That's the stuff that goes to Her Majesty and the ministers every Wednesday. We assess, we believe. Right? Her Majesty and the ministers don't get to read the raw reports, except in highly exceptional circumstances when they request them. So the same with cyber now. GCHQ's recently boosted London sub-brand, the National Cyber Security Centre, We'll continue to have the geeks in it, the politicized geeks, I may add. But their, I wouldn't even say hard data, but their, their reports, which are, bear some relation to data, even if they uh, uh, you know, they jump to conclusions like Cyrillic, therefore the Russians did it, that's going to be one remove from uh, Westminster now, because uh, across the park in the cabinet office, there's going to be this equivalent of the JIC saying, ministers, we assess that you need to do this. So that, that will be, be a nice insulating layer between the actual spooks and uh, the claims that are made in the spook's name. I think that's uh, the, the model that's going to be spun out there. Uh, while we stay with technical stuff, I must credit Alison McDowell, the brilliant American researcher of technocracy and the technocratic education of children, uh, for finding this. But I've gone to the original source. This is a 2018 clip we're going to look at. Uh, on screen just now is the uh, source of it from a Madrid Futurist Award by the Alianza Futurista, the Futurists Alliance, uh, held in October 2018 at the Ateneo de Madrid. Um, it was a Humanity Plus Blockchain Award, and it was awarded to a lady called Melanie Swan for sending an essay in that won an award for talking about the technocratic future. This I suggest you should listen to at least three times on repeat. Uh, or you should scrunch up your eyes and listen jolly carefully because in her horrendously flat robotic voice, and if you're watching in video as well, her, her eyes tell a story. She gives pretty much the whole script for the robotization of mankind. Have a listen to Melanie Swan in October 2018, accepting her award for a prize-winning futurist essay. Hi, everyone. I'm Melanie Swan. I'm delighted to be with you today at Transvision. I'm honored to be accepting the Humanity Plus Essay Writing Competition Award for my entry, Transhuman Crypto Cloud Minds. I take seriously what I consider to be our collective mission to steward smooth migrations to transhuman futures. Multi-species societies comprised of human, machine, and algorithm. This involves both thriving and surviving which blockchain as a future class smart network technology can underwrite. On one hand, blockchains for surviving enforce good player behavior 
with game theoretic incentives and smart contracts and treaties. On the other hand, blockchains also allow the mind expansion we'd like to do as part of the transhuman program, eclipsing the confines of the current meat space mind. By joining a cloud mind, a cloud-based collaboration of human and machine minds, we can participate in problem solving, exploration, adventure, innovation, artistic expression, and other personal development. Cloud minds are a safe way of permissioning partial mind resources into a joint resource. Hence, crypto cloud minds as a safe structure for realizing transhuman futures. Thank you. Is that Satan in the red dress? Um, I'm very, very intrigued by this idea of smart contracts and covenants and treaties. It's getting pretty spiritual there, actually. And of course, the whole point is she's pushing, as did the hedge fund people, blockchain. Blockchain is where we're going to upload our minds. They're going to be out of nasty old meat space and into the cloud. So this is the same blockchain that's going to hold our bank accounts and our social credit ratings, right? Uh, it is indeed. Um, but right. Well, look, I think we can talk much more about that. And uh, that's a, a good stepping off point, Alex, to talk about for extra in a, few, yeah. in a couple of minutes. But uh, we have a couple of uh, final slides. So just uh, just take us through these. Yes, these are the two. And finally, uh, I'm running this uh, Telegram channel now, Eastern Approaches, Alex Thompson. The whole point is to funnel people towards UK column output. Recently, um, I put this out, uh, prompted by a photograph, which I'd seen of what someone had done when they'd logged into UK YouTube and found a number of creepy, hairy, scary faces saying, I'm worried about COVID, let me take my booster. And so I put out a poll on the channel, which got 111 votes before I decided to close it nice and early. And uh, they decided that the creepy thumbnail images for YouTube's default official truth offerings should be christened dumb nails. The other suggestions I made were scare nails, thumb quails and thumb whales. But most of what I put out there, of course, is links and discussions rather than polls. There's a bit of everything in there. And uh, I welcome the three and a half thousand people and growing this are already on there. It will be a way of funneling people towards the UK column. Finally, this was only up for a few hours in Washington, D.C., but top marks to the poster artist who put this out. Uh, this is uh, a series of, uh, of posters for those listening in audio only with, in three cases, Joe Biden. And in one case, I think that's supposed to be Fauci on the right uh, in red and white and black um, mid 20th century sort of uh, sci fi totalitarian style. So on the left, Uncle Joe is holding a sledgehammer marked OSHA, the American Agency for Health and Safety at Work Inspections. And that's in a sort of pseudo Cyrillic script branded comply. Uh, Uncle Joe in the second one is looking like a shining Chairman Mao. And the slogan behind his halo is good kids are compliant kids. The third one has, I, I don't know who that is meant to be sat there, uh, but the slogan is mandate, segregate, subjugate. And on the right, with an atomic halo uh, and a syringe uh, in the hands of what looks like the blessed Anthony Fauci, is again in mid-20th century brutalist font, trust the scientism. If you tap that again, people can find that tweet by, put out by Lee Wolf, L-E-I-G-H Wolf, uh, in a single photo. It didn't take long before one of the local residents to tear them down, but the meme has got out there. Yeah, okay. Well, excellent and great to see uh, creative art at work there. So that's brilliant. 
Uh, can we just say a very big thank you as always to people who are supporting the UK column. And if you're noticing some changes, differences, expansion in how we're running the news, who's participating, what the, um, what the additions are to the news, then this is something we've only been able to do due to your support. If you want to see UK column continue to grow in uh, capability, then please do subscribe because we can only do what we're doing with your financial support. See you in a couple of minutes on uh, for extra on the main live stream. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.